everybody. Happy Father's Day to you guys. Guys, I don't know if you have any Father's Day traditions, but I'll just share mine with you. Uh, pretty much every Father's Day, I wake up, uh, I go to work, um, I come home, I smoke uh, ribs, and, <laughs> and then I open gifts uh, that were bought with my own money. So it's kind of a fun, <laughs> you know, and I love, I love every minute of it, right? It's, it's, that's being a dad. It's, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. So listen, if you got your Bibles, we're going to just jump right into it. We're in Acts chapter 10. And uh, at first glance, this chapter, maybe it doesn't seem to hold a whole lot, but it's kind of like the thunderclap sound of the entire book. Because in chapter 10, we read of the early church beginning to reach out to the nations, which is the fulfillment of what Jesus told his early disciples in chapter 1, verse 8. You are going to be my witnesses. You're going to tell people about me. And it's going to start in Jerusalem. And then it's going to spread to Judea and Samaria. Judea was to the south of Jerusalem. Samaria was to the north, and then he said, we're going to take it worldwide. And so what happened was, Christianity, starting in Jerusalem, was made up of Jews who would embrace Jesus as the Messiah. They recognized that Jesus was the fulfillment of hundreds of years worth of very specific prophecy about a forthcoming Messiah. They identified Jesus as that individual, placed their faith in him. It was a Jewish thing. The hard root of Christianity is actually Jew Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. And so at that time, everybody was kind of of the mindset that the Messiah was for Jews only. And so what happened was as the message began to spread to Judea and Samaria, that's why in the book of Acts you see this slow march of the gospel being for everybody because as it goes into Samaria, you, you, have, um, you have a Samaritan responding to the gospel. Now, Samaritans were, were half-blooded Jews. The Jews considered them unclean. They kind of had this race war against each other. But now they're coming together under this new entity that Jesus brought about called the church. And then we read about this Ethiopian eunuch. Eunuchs had no part in the worship of God, but now he's included in, in, the, in the house of God. And things are getting kind of crazy. It's like nobody saw this coming. People didn't expect this. But God is expanding his family. Then in chapter 10, the lid gets taken off. Because there's a man named Cornelius who doesn't have a drop of Jewish blood in him. And he responds to the gospel message. Now, there's going to be some preparation that has to take place on the part of some early believers. Even some of the earliest leaders in the church are going to have to become convinced that God is actually adding to his family in this way. So it's really, it's, it's quite beautiful. Acts chapter 10, verse 1, we get an introduction to this guy. We read, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Now, Caesarea is actually a very beautiful place. I've been there with some of you. Um, it's uh, a, town, a city that sits on the Mediterranean in the first century AD. It was a Roman military outpost. Herod, such a beautiful spot that Herod had one of his palaces right there. In fact, if, again, if you go there today, you can kind of, you can see the pool that still exists that was built. That's an extension of Herod's palace as it uh, sits on three, three sides of it. It's surrounded by the, the Mediterranean there. Uh, the other significant thing about Caesarea is that archaeologists uncovered a stone. And there was an inscription on that stone with a man's name. That name was Pontius Pilate 
which we now know is the same guy whom Jesus appeared before. He was essentially a, a governor, and Jesus had this conversation with, with Pilate. It was really, it was about truth. At this point, Jesus is rejected. Ultimately, he will be crucified. But I share these things with you to help you understand that the Bible is not myth. It's not fable. It's not a fairy tale. It speaks of real places with real people in real times. Go do your fact-checking. You'll see that it's all true. It's real. So the Bible is just including these details because they're actually there. Now, he was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So this tells us that he was a military man in charge of 100 soldiers. That's the meaning of century, 100. Centurion oversaw 100 soldiers. And he was from the Italian cohort, probably born in Rome or from Rome. And he was an Italian. He was a devout man who feared God. And everybody in his household, his whole family, he gave alms generously to the poor and prayed continually to God. So this guy's super interesting. He would have experienced extreme prejudice from the Jews in his day. And I'm quite certain that in his own time, he would have given it back to them. He represented all the things that the Jews hated. They hated living under Roman authority. And now this is a military man. So he's experienced a lot of prejudice. Again, I'm sure he's given it back. But he's, he's really curious because... The Jews would call a guy like this a God-fearer. He doesn't worship the Roman gods, and there were a lot of them. They were polytheistic. This guy's monotheistic. Not only is he monotheistic, but he's worshiping the God of the Jews. Now, he's not fully all in because he hasn't been circumcised. He doesn't practice the Jewish traditions, but what he does do is he prays to God, and he gives alms to the poor. And so... One day while he's praying, this remarkable thing happens to him. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, which is about 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror, which is the classic response. Whenever an angel shows up and speaks to men, they're terrified. And he said, what is it, Lord? Remember the word Lord means master. Very similar response to the Apostle Paul when he saw the resurrected Jesus. He said, who are you, Lord? It's a, it's a title of respect. He knows he's in the presence of something greater than himself. What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. In other words, God sees your sincere heart. He accepts your worship. Verse 5, and now tells him what to do. Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon. You can tell that Simon was a common name back in the day. But this Simon is different. He's a tanner whose house is by the sea. That's actually a really interesting detail. We'll cover that in a second. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to him, listen, I saw this vision. This is what I was told to do. Go do your thing, right? Go to Joppa, go to this guy's house, Simon the Tanner, look for a guy named Peter. He sent them to Joppa. So this is the second time we have seen God use an angel to speak to a Christian who will be used to bring the gospel to someone who is sincerely seeking. Okay, that's an important theme throughout this book. Now, at about the same time, Peter, 
he gets a vision. And this vision's kind of crazy. There's a sheet that comes down from heaven. And on this sheet, there are animals who were formerly considered unclean because of the ceremonial commands in the Old Testament that God gave down. And so as this sheet drops, he sees these animals, you know, this, maybe some pigs, maybe some shellfish, you know, some things that were not kosher. And to a God-fearing, Old Testament-loving, applying Jew, this is kind of shocking. Because this stuff is gross, it's dirty, it's like turning his stomach, it's sick. He's never had these things before. And he's kind of wondering, what's going on? This is a weird vision. And then he hears a voice. And the voice says, rise and eat. To which Peter replies, no. (laughs) Never. Rise and eat. Peter says, no. Peter had this habit of telling God no. Right? When Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times, Peter's like, no, no, no. About three times, he's like, rise and eat. No, no, no. And so this is very strange. You know, it's like um, he just can't bring himself to do it. And so these decisive words come back to him. Verse 15. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. What does that mean? To the Jew, something was either holy or it was common. By common, meaning that it was unholy. Everything in the world was divided into holy and common or unholy. And those things, according to the Old Testament law, were unholy. They were, they were common. So Peter has this um, internal struggle going on. Um, and it's as if God is saying to him, hey, you know, you know, Peter, there was a time when you stepped out of the boat and walked on water. You remember that? You remember what that took? Trust, faith. You had to listen. You had to act on it. Now, I'm telling you that you're going to have to step out of the... You're going to have to step out of your box. Because you're really boxed in right now in terms of what you think about God and who He wants to reach and what He wants to do in this world. And I'm about to shake things up for you in the best possible way. So this vision is my way of getting your attention. There's this fiery English preacher that lived a long time ago. His name is Charles Spurgeon. And he said this, shake yourself up a little, my brethren. If you are too precise, may the Lord set you on fire and consume your bonds of red tape. If you have become so improperly proper that you cannot commit a proper impropriety, then pray, God, to help you be less proper. For there are many who will never be saved by your instrumentality while you study propriety. In other words, let me put it to you like this. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. They were the high and mighty religious leaders of the day. They hated Jesus. Ultimately, they wanted to have him crucified. They were hypocrites, and Jesus pointed this out. He did so at one point by saying this. You strain gnats, but you swallow camels. Like, what does that mean? 
This is what he's saying is, you sacrifice the larger, more important things for the inconsequential things. It's like, here are these big things that God wants to do, but you're stuck being concerned and um, consumed with the smaller things. And so because of that, you're actually missing out on what God wants to do. And so Peter's contemplating the meaning of this vision. There's a knock on the door. Who is it? Oh, we're here to see Peter. Peter, it's for you. Peter walks up to the door, and he's stunned to see that there's a Roman soldier who's arrived for him. Not only that, but they share the story of Cornelius and why they are at his doorstep, the doorstep of his friend, the house where he's staying. Now, understand that Peter, who is a Jew among Jews, would have no interaction whatsoever with a Gentile, let alone a Gentile Roman soldier. But here he is standing at the doorstep. Peter's heart is beginning to change because he invites him into Simon, Simon the Tanner's home, which is really, really curious. It's really it's a fascinating detail in the text because a tanner was the last man to show hospitality. The home of a tanner could only be built outside of the city limits and downwind from the city itself because he dealt in rotting flesh. And so tanners were known as really stinky people. And yet, God uses him to host what will be the introduction of Peter and this Gentile. I'm telling you, God does things in the most unexpected ways. How about the Messiah coming in the form of a baby? He's always doing things that you don't expect. And so, as humans... It's, we are so prone to putting God in a box, and I've said it this way before, be careful you don't domesticate God. You're in trouble. Your God has been made way too small. So there's so many crazy things happening in this story. So Peter is in the house of this tanner. It's this stinky place. Here comes this Roman soldier. They're showing hospitality to one another, and then they're going to leave Joppa. Peter's going to leave Joppa, with this mindset, I don't know what God is doing, but he's going to do something special, and, and I have a message that needs to be communicated. Now, you know what's interesting about this text, too? The city of Joppa is the same spot where, a few hundred years earlier, another man of God was told, I, I have a mission for you. I want you to leave Joppa, and I want you to go to the city of Nineveh. And I want you to... Tell them about who I am and give them the opportunity to repent so that salvation can come to them. And Jonah says, no. In fact, he tries to do an end run around God, does his best to avoid what God is asking him to do. 
So once again, now it's the similarities to the story in the Old Testament, they're amazing, right? Same city, kind of the same circumstance. Peter's a little reluctant. He's not sure about it. That's why God gives him that vision of what's clean and what's unclean, but it's actually more than just animals. Jonah flees, avoids God, but Peter obeys. He's open to God's plan of saving everyone, regardless of his previous prejudices. And so Peter and Cornelius meet. Verse 23, the next day he, Peter, rose, and he went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So this is a really curious event where they got to see what's going on. Verse 24, on the following day, they entered Caesarea. It's about a 30, 35-mile journey. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So everybody's, you know, the house is full of people, all these Gentiles. When Peter entered, it's the first time he would have ever done anything like this. He's stepping foot in a Gentile home. Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. And you can't blame him because the guy is just like, I've had so many supernatural crazy things happen to me. I mean, Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many, many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know, see, look at this, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Everybody recognizes the historic it's like I said, it's like a thunderclap moment in the history of the church. Peter walks in, and the first thing he says is, you know that this is a big deal. You know that this, this just doesn't happen. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's the point of the vision. It's not just about eating a nice piece of thick-cut bacon. It's about a lot more than that. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? So Peter understands that the vision has two purposes. Number one, the, uh, the food laws are fulfilled and ended in Jesus. And this is actually a very important point. Because what is one of the main things that the church did when it came together? What were they doing together? Eating. They were sharing a meal together, and they did this a lot. The text tells us they went from home to home breaking bread. They were constantly eating together. People think the Baptists invented the potluck. No, man. It was the church in the first century. But here's the challenge. Think about it. Here's the challenge. God is doing something crazy, something that nobody expected. He's bringing together all these different ethnicities, races, background histories. All these crazy people are coming together under one roof. And what is the one thing that could be a source of real division? The food. And so, so as everybody's bringing their, you know, their little covered dishes, wherever you're from, right, from the south, it's a covered dish. In other places, it's a potluck. That's what I was told earlier, right? So everybody's bringing their own stuff they make, and they bring it to the, the church picnic here. And um, in walks the Gentile with some, you know, some fat pork sandwiches. And, and what was, and the Jews are like, they're side-eyeing it. This could have been a real problem in the early church. This could have been a real source of division. So God says, hey, Peter, here's what we're doing. We're just, we're bringing down any barriers now that might keep people from me 
and keep Christians from each other. Oh, that's a really important point that needs to be said again. God's saying, I'm bringing down all these barriers. Whatever you think, whatever you think, it keeps people from being in a relationship with me, keeps people from being in my family. All those things now are melting away. The things that might keep Christians from one another, including what they eat, what they don't eat, all of those things now are melting away. Neither Gentiles nor the food that they eat are unclean. And I'm kind of excited for, you know, someone like Peter back in the day, because if I was him, I would be like, I'd be snacking on that bacon hardcore. You know what I mean? I'd be taking seconds and thirds and like Jesus is just that good, right? All these side benefits of Christianity. So Cornelius explains the vision wherein he was told to send for Peter, verse 33. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanding by the Lord. And then Peter preaches a short but powerful sermon to the Gentiles gathered in Cornelius' house. And it's really beautiful, verse uh, 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, this is how he starts, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, neither should you. You show no partiality. Peter is preaching to his own heart here first. It's another important uh, insight principle here, right? Sometimes you got to preach to your own heart and you have to overcome the stuff that you think would prevent you from doing what God wants you to do. And so what's Peter doing? He begins by saying, you know what? Let me just preach to myself for a second. Here's what God has told me. I now know that God shows no, no partiality. Hard for me to describe the, the impact of this in church history. This is the foundation for Peter's understanding that the gospel is for Gentiles, for everybody. You know, the prevailing attitude, well, the dominant attitude from the Jews toward the Gentiles, maybe it can be summed up best by an oath that was taken by the Jews. <clears throat> Part of that oath was to state that you would not help a Gentile in any way. If there was a Gentile woman who was struggling in labor... You had every right, and you were expected not to help her. Because what are you going to do? Bring another Gentile baby into the world? If a Jewish man married a Gentile woman, his relatives threw a funeral for him because he was as good as dead to them. This was the hostility. And the Gentiles handed it right back to the Jews. But all of this is coming down because of Jesus, verse 35. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to God. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. It's not just peace with God now. It's peace with your fellow human. As he embraces the message of Jesus, there's this new thing that God is starting, the church. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, that would be John the Baptist, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So he's kind of going through and he's saying, now here's, let me give you the street cred that Jesus has. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And then he says, we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. 
we ate with him, we drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness. So as a good Jew, he's kind of summarizing what Cornelius has no clue of what he's talking about because he doesn't know the, Old, the Jewish Old Testament. So he just throws in there, you know, look, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. All the Old Testament prophets, when they prophesied about a forthcoming Messiah, they were actually talking about Jesus. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All right. There's a lot here. Um, first of all, Luke, the author, isn't, he's not trying to tell us that if you are devout and if you fear God and if you give money to the poor and if you pray to God, he's telling us if you do those things, that's not enough. That's not going to get you into heaven. If it did, there would be no reason for the angel to direct Peter to share the message of Jesus. You can't be saved without knowing who Jesus is. That's crucial to this story. You have to know Jesus. Of course, in our time, it's exceedingly popular to believe that as long as one's good outweighs his or her bad, then the gates of heaven will be yours. This demolishes that. This passage destroys that. Additionally, the prophet Isaiah says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, our sins are like the wind that, that take us away. So understand the gospel got its start amongst the most devout people on the planet namely the Jews. They had more advantages in knowing God. They had the sacred scriptures more than anyone else on earth. Yet they were told again and again, your good deeds won't get you there. Your works of righteousness won't get you there. There were some people who tithed on top of their tithe. That's way better than 99% of you. They tithed on top of their tithe. That's how good they were. But they didn't know Jesus, they had religious sincerity, but it didn't solve the problem of their sin. The other thing, this passage reminds us that uh, as Christians, we, sh we should never look down on anyone and say they are unfit. They are too far removed from God's saving hand. They have too many offensive habits. Their history is one that is godless. Um, common meant unclean, meant rejected, despised, taboo. It was like being a leper back in the day. And literally, the words to Peter are, do not consider unclean what was common. There isn't one human being on the face of the planet that we shouldn't see in this way. If the early Christians would have stopped here, then Jesus' command to take the message, the gospel worldwide, it would have stopped. But 
Peter it was like this guy that had the key. And Jesus told him that he would play this role. He's like, Peter, you're going to have a crucial role in not just the foundation of the church, but the building up of the church and the reaching of the Gentiles. And Peter, you see him playing that role well. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he plays off of the questioner's uh, already formed religious assumptions that you have to do in order to get. And so, you know, Jesus says, hey, love God, love your neighbor. And so the guy, the text says, in an effort to sort of justify himself, he fires back a question at Jesus. And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus launches into the most unusual story that any of them have ever heard. Because he talks about this guy who's traveling down this road. It's a really dangerous road. And the guy gets beat up and he's left for dead. He's struggling. And a man passes him who happens to be a priest, a religious leader, leader, a man of God, passes by, sees him, goes out of his way to avoid him. Right? And then there's another man that passes him, and he's a Samaritan, a half-blooded Jew. Now, the listeners, remember, to this story, they're all Jewish. They respect the priest, man. It goes from the God to to the priest to everybody else. Samaritans have no part in God. They have no, no, no part in what God wants to do. And so Jesus takes the Samaritan, he says, you know, the Samaritan walks by the guy and says, he needs my help. And the Samaritan is the one who gets him what he needs, and the Samaritan helps him at his own expense, and then Jesus fires off the question. You tell me, which one was a better neighbor? The answer is obvious. It's the Samaritan. The point of the story is your neighbor is anyone who is in need of help, but there's another plot line going there as well. And that other plot line is, I just took the very person that you think is unclean and unfit, and I made him the hero of my story. And everybody's like, okay. This is part of the reason why they wanted to kill Jesus because he kept saying and doing things like this. Um, Cornelius represents a kind of unsaved person among an unreached people group who is seeking God in an extraordinary way. Uh, We are reminded that there is a holy God because isn't it interesting in Peter's sermon, he says that Jesus is the judge. So often today, Jesus is seen as just very one-sided. But Jesus is a judge. And when we stand before that judge, we cannot save ourselves. The only hope you and I have is to have received the payment that the judge has already made on our behalf. It's clear. One more thing to note. Cornelius would not have been saved if no one had taken him the gospel. Think about it. God could have used an angel to communicate the message of Jesus, but he doesn't. He uses another Christian. Why? You ever thought about that? Why? Why is it like that? Why is it that God uses his followers to reach those that are far from him? Why? Angels are messengers. They do whatever God tells them to do. But instead, he chooses to use us. Today's Father's Day. My dad went on to his reward a few years ago. My dad was, uh, he was an auto body repair guy, a mechanic. I could fix anything with his hands. And when I was a little boy, I can remember 
standing over his shoulder watching him repair something. And I, and I was his little helper. And I would stand there and I would watch and I would wait for him to say something like, hey, Jason, can you hand me the hammer? Hey, Jason, can you, can, can, can you grab the wrench for me? And so I would find the hammer, I'd find the wrench, and I'd hand it to Dad. And I remember feeling like, you know, I remember I had like, I'm a, I'm a dude, you know, I'm a man. Dad and I are fixing stuff together, right? And so when my kids were little, I did the same thing with them. So if there's something that was maybe broken down on the car in a simple way, I'm not nearly the level my dad was and I'm working on something and my kids are leaning over my shoulder. You know, every once in a while, there'd be a bolt that was so tight, I needed the help of a strong five-year-old. And so I'd put my hand on the wrench and then I'd put that five-year-old hand on top of my hand. And together we'd be like, and you'd crack it and it would move. How about it couldn't be done without that five-year-old's help? And you could just see the kid's face light up. We did it. Dad, we did it. Right? And there's this joy that comes over him. It's like, little man, he did it. This is how God receives joy as well. This is how you receive joy when you partner with God in what he's doing. Jesus has already done the heavy lifting. So we kind of come alongside. Now our job is to simply talk about it. We tell other people about what Jesus has done. And as people respond, you experience the joy of working with your heavenly Father in accomplishing what is of eternal significance. Have you done that? Have you experienced that? Well, let's pray for it. Father, the words of this chapter are so good, so rich. God, as we leave here this morning, will you continue to impress upon our hearts the beauty of our own salvation, not just that, but the honor, the dignity that you have bestowed upon every single one of your followers, that we would be able to partner with you in accomplishing, at times, what seems impossible. What's impossible to us, so easy for you. And God, there is such a joy in that experience. I pray for every person in the room who has placed their faith and trust in you, that we'd be able to experience that joy as we step out of our own boxes and boats and we come alongside your grand mission of redemption for all of humanity, sharing the message of Jesus with those around us. For those who don't know you, who are maybe listening online in this moment, maybe some moment in the future, even listening in the room, God, continue to draw them near. Lord, break down that sense that on our own, we are good enough to get to you. If we were, there'd be no reason for Jesus. But because you love us, you gave what mattered most. 
so that we could have life. Our sins forgiven, the debt paid. Father, for that we are grateful and we pray to our Heavenly Father for His ultimate goodness in sending His Son as a sacrifice for us. And to that we say together, God's people, amen.